Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. It's Trinity Sunday, and we're going to stick with the theme today. And you may notice that our service is deeply and profoundly Trinitarian. We began our service with a hymn that speaks about the Trinity. Then we went to an invocation in which we said, Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Soon, Margaret Elizabeth will be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then our service will conclude with a blessing upon all of you in the name of God, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the the Trinity is a concept that has created a great deal of controversy and fascination over the years. Uh, Some people have seen it uh, as biblical. Others have seen it as as sort of an invention of Constantine the Great, you know, and slammed upon the church from Roman authority. I mean, probably not. But uh, some people go in that direction, that Dan Brown-esque Da Vinci Code direction. Um, Others have sought to explain the concept using very simple metaphors, like it's a clover, you know, a three-leafed clover, and other people call those clover people heretics. I mean, it's really complicated. Um, But I I suppose I could offer today a biblical defense of the Trinity. I could talk about the interrelationships of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the Trinity. I could uh, talk to you about the, the Trinity in the Old Testament. I could talk to you about a variety of things regarding God's inner nature. But what I want to speak about today is the needfulness of the Trinity, why we need the Trinity, why we lean upon the Trinity, why without the Trinity, the lights go out in Georgia. And so I'm going to speak about the needfulness of the Trinity. Um, And uh, I I think that our lectionary points us to very interesting texts today. The lectionary or the texts that are assigned for given Sundays. The lectionary is not infallible. It was not written by Jesus, um, but it can be helpful because it points us to certain uh, texts that, that uh, for at least today's purposes, re- remain somewhat confounding. Why, for example, would they have us read from Exodus 3 on Trinity Sunday? Exodus 3 doesn't mention Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, right? So, so it, it doesn't seem blatantly Trinitarian, and yet, and yet, There are echoes of the Trinity in Exodus 3. And so I want to speak about those echoes within Exodus 3. I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about the radiating presence, the incomparable I am, and the keen interventionist. And then I want to conclude today's sermon by speaking about the Trinity uh, as necessary, especially for teenagers. Yes, That's what I mean, especially necessary for teenagers. So I'm going to be talking about the radiating presence at first, because that's really what happens at the beginning of our lesson. So just as a brief review, uh, Moses was a quasi-princeling in Egypt, discovered his own Hebrew identity, and uh, and then saw at one point in his middle-aged career uh, that, that an Egyptian soldier was beating a Jewish slave, and he flips out and he kills the Egyptian, and then he runs into the desert, and he hides from his destiny, right? He hides from life, he hides from threat. That's where we pick up the story. And I'd like you to follow along with me, please, as we talk about the radiating presence in verse 1 of Exodus 3. 
So Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Uh, Now, notice that before God starts to speak, before God verbalizes his will for Moses, before he addresses uh, the, the situation of the Jews in Egypt, before he gives directions on how Moses is to engage with the political forces of Egypt, he uh, provides a sign. He provides a sign to show that he's present, to show that this is a unique supernaturally oriented event. And the sign is fire. And fire in scripture does one of two things, sometimes both things. First, it illumines things that are left in the darkness. And so it causes you to see what you could not normally see. And it also purifies. Fire is often a sign of purification. That's why when Isaiah thought that he would be a threat to his countrymen, there's an angel that takes uh, tongs with a coal in it and puts it on his tongue as a sign of purification, right? Uh, and so that's, the fire has a very kind of poignant, symbolic uh, nature within Holy Scripture. And, and all of a sudden we see a fire miracle right in front of Moses. Before God addresses him, there's a fire miracle. And I want you to notice the location of this fire miracle. It's called Mount Horeb here, but that's not the only name of this mountain. The other name of this mountain is Mount Sinai. It's Mount Sinai. And this is a very important mountain in biblical history because God will later in the epic bring his liberated slaves to this mountain and address them more squarely with a great teaching called the law. But when Moses is receiving the law from God at that later stage, what happens? Another fire miracle. The top of the mountain begins to burn with fire. But that's not all. Later, uh, when, when Israel is under threat by horrific uh, living conditions and social deformations and, uh, and, and the silencing of God's prophets and idolatry, God visits Elijah. Remember the prophet Elijah? And he visits Elijah on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai through a variety of signs. And one of those signs is fire. And so miracle fire just keeps coming back again and again uh, as a way that God is demonstrating some sort of theophonic presence with his people. It's a way that he signals to them that he's with them, that these ideas and conceptions that they have about him don't have a natural origin, but have a supernatural origin. They derive from God's withness. The fire is a way to say that he's with his people. And by the way, I I think we can see in this smoke signal, in this fire miracle, something of the Holy Spirit. Why do I say something of the Holy Spirit? Because what happens in the New Testament when God's presence, uh, his spirit manifests itself, himself? On the day of Pentecost, we just talked about this last Sunday. What happens? A fire miracle. A fire miracle, right? Right. God's radiating signal is present in that upper room. You know, in the Old Testament, we see a bush on fire that does not burn. In the New Testament, we see men on fire who are not singed. The Holy Spirit lands upon them and then empowers them to do what they could never by instinct or nature do themselves. 
They just didn't have it in them, except when they knew that God was really with them and that they saw a tangible sign of that withness. They were empowered in new ways. And I think this is the point here, the point that God is making with Moses in this fire miracle is that, you know, he is sending Moses, about to send Moses on an impossible mission. Go to the most powerful empire in the world that has the most uh, sophisticated uh, political structure and hierarchy and the most developed religion of the day. Go to them and say, yeah, all the, your workhorses, like all of the people that you've been using for hundreds of years to get your little architectural projects done and to prove your greatness, yeah, that's all done now. You're going to let them go. And we're not going to give you any money for it. You're just going to let them go. That's a, that's a death march. That's an impossible mission. And yet God is setting Moses on an impossible mission to accomplish that which Moses could not accomplish by nature. And he wants to secure Moses in the supernatural before he sends him on a mission that requires the supernatural. So he appears to him in this theophonic uh, um, fire miracle. He does the same things with the apostle, the same thing with the apostles on the day of Pentecost as he sends the Holy Spirit who lands on them as tongues of fire. They're about to go do something impossible. They're about to go beyond their homeland. Most of them have never done that. You know, people didn't like travel to Idaho back then. It wasn't a thing. Like people didn't vacation in you know, Hawaii. No one did that. But, but they were about to leave their country and their familiar surroundings and their families and their languages and everything so that they could go preach about a Messiah who perished and who rose again. And they needed a theophonic vision to secure them in, in God's power before they did it. And so we have a radiating presence, and that's where our text begins. And then we have the incomparable I am. The incomparable I am. This is verse 5, a little later in our reading. Verse 5 where God says, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then a little later, it's not in our reading today, but the point is important. A little later, God gives his name to Moses. He says in verse 14, I am that I am. Uh, what's really interesting to me is God doesn't first address Moses by telling him his plan for Moses or for Israel. He essentially says that there's an issue with your clothing. It's fascinating, right? He says the first thing you have to do is to situate your, your body. You have to situate yourself in a, in a better way if you're going to really encounter God. And so he gives him a symbolic gesture. He says you need to take off your steel-toed work boots. Like, they're not appropriate here. Like, you need to take off your, your, your grubby gear. And that sends a message. What's the message? That there is a mismatch between you and your maker. Like, you are not on the same level, Right? It's, uh, it's what's often carved on those Torah boxes that have the Torah scrolls in temples even today. In Hebrew, know before whom you stand. Like, check yourself. Take off your work boots. Like, get low. Because you're about to encounter the infinite. You're about to encounter the great I am, the one um, who is holy. And holiness means a sacred otherness. Somebody who's not like you. Right? And, and notice that we see this understanding in Moses' face. Did you, did you read what he did? He can't look. He has to shy away because he doesn't want to stare at God. He would think that's inappropriate um, because he's full of fear 
because he knows there's a mismatch between him and his maker. Now, sometimes Moses is tempted uh, later in his life to look at God. We know that because of an episode. He's like, I just want to see your face. And God says, yeah, that might be okay, but if you did, you would die. So I'm going to like shine glory through a, a crack in a rock, and you'll see that, and that'll be enough. And just seeing a little tiny glimpse of glory for a millisecond changed Moses' face for a long time. He started to be incandescent. You remember that story? Yeah, so, um, so but he, he knows that it's not his place to look at God right now. Um, and so we see this otherness, this incomparable I am. And, and we do know that even the name I am, I am that I am, suggests otherness. You know, in, in Hebrew, it's very hard to translate, let alone pronounce. We call it the Tetragrammaton. Isn't that a great name? It sounds like something from Transformers. Tetragrammaton. So it's Y-H-W-H. It, it's just a collection of imperfect verbs. And because there are no, like, uh, no uh, written vowels in Hebrew, it's very hard to know how to pronounce it. So many people just gave their best attempt. You know, in the Renaissance, they called him Jehovah, kind of. Some people would say Yahweh. It's very hard to know how to translate it exactly. But what I find uh, more interesting than God's unpronounceable name is that God's name is self-referential. Did you hear that? I am that I am. That isn't even a name. It's just a collection of verbs. I am that I am. In other words, God's very own name, in God's very own name, God compares himself to whom? Himself. God compares himself to himself. Now, what's really interesting about that is that, you know, the Egyptians were not stupid. They realized that there were powers that were greater than humanity, and they worshipped those things. Whether it was love, or sex, or power, or politics, or armies, or the stars, or the moon, or the tides. And they developed deities that would correspond to all of those things. And they said that if you, um, you want to really understand our gods, if you really want to understand our gods, you have to look for a local metaphor. Yeah. So if you want to really understand Ra, look at the sun. If you really want to understand a deity like Tefnut, look at the rain and how the rain creates a fertility in the earth. If you really want to understand the river Nile, uh, you have to look at the god Hopi, who creates the river and sustains the river. Um, but what's fascinating about God's name is that God is professing by his very name that there is no metaphor, no image, no statue, no mosaic, nothing that is sufficient enough to summarize the totality of God's being. You can't do it. And any attempt to do it, any attempt to solidify God in just one image would be seen as idolatrous. And that's why idolatry was so... Uh, was so shunned by Israelite theology because it was, it was believed that there is no way to contain or perfectly express the incomparable I am. Now, this, so Judaism has this very sophisticated understanding of God, right? Because on the one hand, they understand God to be wholly other and distinct. He is not creation, right? God is not Mercury. God is not, um, God is not the tides. God is not... Uh, our political leaders. God is not those things. And yet, while God is not those things, God is deeply invested in all those things. And God cares for all those things. God is involved in all those things. He is, of course, not only the creator, but the one who calls, calls families. Like he just mentions it in our text. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob works through this very dysfunctional family and then comes to Moses and speaks to this murderer 
and says, I know that's who you are, and I'm going to use you, a murderer, to be a great emancipator for thousands and thousands of people. They're all going to live better lives because of you. So this is the God who is apart from, distinct from, wholly other from, and yet deeply invested in his created order, and yet can't be contained with any imagery in that created order. Now, in the Old Testament, I am was God's name, seen as so sacred, understood to be so sacred, that nobody would actually pronounce it. They started calling him Adonai instead, or just the Lord, because they were afraid to say the name. But that was God's name. That is, until Jesus started speaking. And then Jesus did something daring. He gave God uh, a new name. Now, this was a, a name or an image that was occasionally used in the Old Testament. But for Jesus, it was not a metaphor. He started calling the great I am Father. Father. Not as a metaphor. God is like a father. He started calling him Father, teaching us to pray our Father. And then he declared that it was a name. You remember the Great Commission or one of the Great Commissions. There are five of them, depending on which gospel you're reading or the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, he says that you are to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in other words, Jesus understood God's truest name to be parental, paternal, familial, that that's God's truest nature. But that is the great I am, the great creator God, the one who creates and calls and invests himself in the world, the incomparable I am. And lastly, in our text, we see the keen interventionist. This is verse seven, the keen interventionist. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Note the emotive words that describe Israel's experience and God's perception of Israel's experience. Affliction, cries, and sufferings. All of those things. You know, there's a psalmist who writes, because he, he was a fretful fellow, that, that God had collected his tears in a bottle. In other words, God um, sees. God is keen. God perceives the nightmares of his people. God perceives the suffering and agonies of human beings. And notice, God not only sees, but he responds. Do you see what it says? So I have come down. I've come down. In other words, I'm condescending to history. I'm going to square with this problem right here and right now, and it will be no more. In other words, while God is other, wholly other, his otherness does not surpass his care. In fact, he surpasses us in the realm of caring. He's much better than we are at that sort of thing. And so God becomes more than just conceptual or hypothetical. He is a historical interventionist. He acts to turn the tide to rescue slaves. And, and this is why the Exodus becomes the Old Testament motif for redemption. It is Israel's redemption story. We were once slaves, but God intervened and we are slaves no more. And it's because of him, because he is with us. And this interventionist impulse is so strong within God's very nature that God's I am-ness eventually does more than just act through uh, miracles from heaven. God's I amness materializes in a single human life. 
the life of Jesus of Nazareth, in which God becomes a Judean contractor turned teacher who goes from village to village saying crazy things like, I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. The great I am of the burning bush invests himself in human form. And Jesus, the interventionist, hears the afflictions, the cries, and the sufferings of his people, and he has come down. And this is why we say in one of our colics in church that God's power is shown chiefly in showing pity. Now, we don't think that way. We think power is invested in all sorts of like shock and awe treatments, not God. God's power is shown chiefly in joining himself to our afflicted state. And so he, Jesus, becomes the bridge. Our Jesus, our interventionist, becomes the bridge. The bridge between what? The bridge between the I am and the I am not. Namely, God and the needy sinner. He becomes the bridge that connects those two worlds. And so in this text, we see the radiating presence, the incomparable I am, and the keen interventionist. Uh, Three things, three attributes of God that reflect three persons within the Godhead. And so when Christians say the word God, we mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the triune nature of God is, is explicitly mentioned in certain passages and implicitly taught in others. But the Trinity is woven through all of Scripture. There in Genesis 1, where the Father speaks the word and then sends the spirit to hover over the waters. There in Daniel 7, where the ancient of days, the great father is presented with a divine son of man who comes before him and is worshiped and adored. Or Ezekiel, where the father speaks the word and then sends his breath or his spirit to reanimate the dead. Or at the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus shows up in the water, there's a voice from the father in heaven and the spirit descends upon him as a dove. Or at the great commission, where Jesus says to baptize people in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit or Paul's salutations in his letters where he says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy spirit be with you always. And it's also here in the calling of Moses. We hear the echoes of God's uh, triune nature, the great I am the radiating presence and the keen interventionist. So I'm going to conclude in a somewhat unusual way, but it's not terribly unusual. I'm going to talk about why the Trinity is really, really important for American teenagers. Uh, why am I directing this application to teenagers? Well, I have my reasons, and they are three. First, I've never before addressed teenagers in a targeted way, so I'm making up for lost time. Second, I'd like to show how the doctrine of the Trinity affects everyone, not just well-adjusted, well-educated, theologically savvy, stable adults. And third, when I speak to teenagers, I'm really speaking to all of us all of us, because some here in this room are going to be teenagers. Some of you are currently teenagers and others of us think we have moved past our teenage impulses, but have not. Um, uh, And so this will probably apply to everyone. At least I hope it will. So here's to the teenagers in the room first. And I mean this from a pastoral heart. You have a father. You have a father. You know, there is a rumor that due to hormonal imbalances, teenagers are not always emotionally stable. By the way, that is not a critique from your minister. It is an extremely difficult thing to endure the changes in our bodies and our minds during those years. It's extremely difficult. 
But the good news is that God, the incomparable I am, is not like you and not like me. God is never changing, never moody, experiencing the bipolarities of conflicting feelings. God is wholly other, the unmovable mover. He is consistent. He is timeless. He is ageless. He is sleepless. He is unflappable. He is the tradition beneath our traditions. He is the ethicist behind our ethics. He is the father behind our elders. He's engineered your very person using a million ingredients of sublime quality and imprinted you with an eternal label, very good. And the very goodness of you has not been eroded with sin or time. And while people and jobs and families and friendships and universes in our own psychological states rise and fall, your higher power does not and never will. He's stabler and older than topsoil, than uranium and the, the, and the rings of Saturn. And there will be times in your life, and you may be experiencing them now, uh, that are uncertain, unstable, times of struggle, times of crisis, times of uh, disenchantment. And sometimes the hurt will be so fearsome and inexplicable that you'll spitefully deny that there's any structure to reality at all or any God behind that structure. And yet, whether we see him or not, like him or not, believe in him or not, the I am remains there. Steady in his course. Steady is the Alps, standing behind the rain curtain of experience, the clouds, the questions, and all of our protests. He is the nerve center of all things, the undying nerve center. He is, for your everlasting well-being, the unflinching, stable, incomparable I am. And when your life gives way, his will not. He is reliable unto the end. You also have the spirit. I know teenagers often experience isolation. I know I did. In part because they are being pelted with too much data to process, which makes them question everything, deconstruct everything. The teenage years offer a speedy development that stretches as well as overwhelms. It can be terribly stressful, confusing, and very isolating. But in the dark chasm of your own assaulted mind and experience, you are not and have never been all by yourself. God is not, friends, God is not the man upstairs, some remote, chilly aristocrat who plots the courses of our lives from afar, looking only at the tops of our heads from his penthouse balcony. No, he's the God of fire and wind who talks to desert murderers and refugees and runaways. He's the spirit who strolls in Saudi Arabian deserts and torches shrubbery on forgotten mountains. And the same spirit radiates near you. In those desperately confused and isolating moments, as your weaponized thoughts echo in your own head, you will discover in the bright darkness of faith a radiant one who bathes all of your bleakness in unexpected light. He is the one whom Jesus labeled a counselor, a comforter, the spirit of truth. And so you are not orphaned now, nor will you ever be. No power of hell, no scheme of man can do that to you. You will never be lost in the valley of the shadow of death and never alone because the spirit, the fiery presence of God is not going anywhere. And lastly, you have the sun. Teenagers, at least most of them, begin to make mistakes that move beyond the acceptable ones, like grabbing an extra cookie or writing on the living room wall with markers. No, teenagers begin to make darker, putrid, 
mistakes that will fill them with regret and shame, and that's why they hide much of what they do and some of who they are. Many teenagers are held hostage by bits of dark material that they are terrified of, and especially terrified that someday, somehow, they will be found out and shown for who they really are. That dark material is too much to bear, and so they attempt numerous things to improve their lives and feelings. Some blame others, and that tends to work for a while. That is, thinking all our problems are always the fault of an outside force, either personal or systemic. Others think that changing allegiances in life will help them for a time. So they seesaw between political ideologies or philosophical trends or religious expressions, or they adopt a worldview, then discard a worldview, or they get a tattoo, usually something in Chinese, uh, dabble in Scientology, go vegan, invest in cryptocurrency. I still don't know what that is. And sometimes that helps. Sometimes it helps. And yet it's not really enough because it doesn't quell the war within. The problem is that we don't need a little more enlightenment. We need an exodus. We don't need a little help. We need to be saved. And the great emancipator, the great emancipator sees you, all of you, the bright and the dark, and your secret suffering that smacks you around, and he has intervened. This act of intervention impaled his wrists and ribcage and ruined him through and through. But that's what he wanted, to become for us ruination. He is your beaten-down Passover lamb who never, ever will demand a pound of flesh from you because he's already had it extracted from him. Nothing more is required of you. When you don't feel good about yourself, when you feel dark inside, the Son of God, and there is no higher authority, says that you are forgiven and adored. The Son sees you with unblinking love. So that's just for the teenagers, or for those who will be teenagers, or for those of us who still function like teenagers. And we are here today, friends, not to speculate about the Trinity, not to debate the Trinity, not to talk endlessly about mystery. We are here to confess that we need the Trinity. The Trinity is our family, our foundation, our castle, our country, the one in whose image we were made. The Trinity is the point of our origin and our destiny. This is our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. They could not take your